Welcome back to Outside the System. In this episode, I spoke with Andy Schoonover, the CEO of CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth has a massive vision. They're building an alternative to health insurance. As you might have guessed, we went deep on things like healthcare costs, the medical industrial complex, CrowdHealth solution, and a lot more. I personally learned a ton about the healthcare system and what can be done to improve it, and I think you will too. Let's dive in. Andy, thanks for joining me on Outside the System today. Thanks so much for having me. It should be fun. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. So I know we've talked on, on Twitter a few times uh, with each other. I, I came across what you're doing. I think someone linked me to Crowd Health, and I just thought it was super interesting. First of all, that someone's even tackling an alternative business model in healthcare because it's such a, what's like the kind way to put this, captured by other interests um, industry. And, uh, you know, it's one of those industries where I feel like innovation is not, it's not the limiting factor is not really technology. The limiting factor seems to be the um, entrenched interests that are, are blocking a lot of the innovation. So it was cool to see that you're working on, you know, working on something and trying to, to really build something that can change how healthcare works in the U.S. Yeah. Well, we, you know, it's, we call it the medical industrial complex. That kind of term has been used for a long, long time in, in, in terms of the military industrial complex and, and things like that. But, you know, it, it truly is a, a medical industrial complex where you've got big stakeholders and some of the biggest companies in the world are stakeholders in ensuring that healthcare costs go up in this country. And that's what we're trying to change. Not a, a small feat. It's a David and Goliath versus kind of thing. But, um, you know, we're, we're going to take a swing at it. So maybe just to set the stage, because we get listeners, you know, from different parts of the world. And even in the US, it's it's very ambiguous how the healthcare system works. What does the system look like today? And how does that work? And then maybe segue into what you guys are trying to do to, to disrupt that. Yeah, I mean, simplistically, and it's hard to do because it is a pretty complex system. But simplistically, you know, you get a bunch of people together, they all put money into a, a pool of capital, that capital is then used to pay out health events. You know, so if you have a big one like cancer or whatever, there's enough money in that pool to pay out the, the payments for, for that cancer. That's not necessarily the, uh, there's nothing bad about that particular thing. What's challenging is, is that you've got for-profit organizations who are adjudicating or telling you what you can and can get, can and can't get in terms of your medical care. And then you have a, a big hospital systems who just have an incentive for the, the prices to, to go up. And so, you know, I joke with people about this that are like, oh, this is really, really complex. And it, and it is. However, the insurance plans who are the, the buyers of healthcare, they're the ones that are paying the healthcare bills, actually in our country have an incentive for the prices to go up. And so why is that? Because they're maxed out at what percentage of the premium they can use as administrative and profit. And so let's just, I'll just give you an example. If you know, my family pays in $1,000 of premiums, United Healthcare is maxed out at 150 bucks or 200 bucks, depending upon the plan, of profit. And so if they are a profit maximizing organization, what you have to do to make $165, 10% more, is for your premiums to go from $1,000 to $1,100. So you actually have the buyers of healthcare having an incentive for the healthcare prices to go up, which is crazy, right? Yeah. And then you have the sellers of healthcare, which is these hospital systems. They're the ones providing all the services. They clearly want the price to go up because they're profit maximizing as well. And so... You know, you have the buyers of healthcare and the sellers of healthcare both incentivized for the price to go up. What happens? The price goes up. And so a simplistic version of what's going on, but that's the screwed up nature of our of our healthcare system is there are no market forces pushing healthcare costs down. And that's why we pay twice as much per capita than any other country in the in the world for our healthcare costs. Yeah, and it's also it's the other part of this is that we buy healthcare so differently than we buy anything else. You know, if you go into a doctor's office to and have to get something done, you don't walk in there knowing the price of what that's going to cost. You find out, you know, months later, potentially, what that actually cost you. I mean, that would be like you get on a flight and you land and then you get to your hotel and then you get a bill for the flight. 
I mean, it just we don't buy anything that way. And to your point, the buyers of healthcare, you know, it's it's counterintuitive, but the buyer of healthcare is actually the insurance company. It's not the patient. Well, and and oftentimes now the insurance company actually owns the doctor that you go to. So you're supposed to have an insurance company fighting for you and getting a really good price from the doctor, but now the insurance company owns both. So they really have they really have no incentive to reduce the price because they're getting paid in addition to paying, right? So they have the pay the payee and the payor as the same entity. That's screwed up. The largest owner of of doctors in the in the country is United Healthcare. When you say owner, is it like they're buying practices or what is? The- they're, yeah, they're they're buying practices. They and they they're buying hospitalists. So you know, if you go into the hospital, you have people coming around and seeing you. Those are hospitalists. United Healthcare owns those people in many cases, right? They're buying up all these doctors across the country. So they are the buyer and the seller of healthcare in the same transaction in many cases. That is wild. You never see, I mean, you would rarely ever see that in any other space. No, it's, and here's the thing, right? Is United Healthcare is, is, I think, the seventh largest company in the planet, according to, you know, by revenue. So they have more money than anybody. And so they got more lobbyists than anybody who then lobby, you know, the, the, the Congress and, and our legislature and therefore pass bills to, you know, it's just it's 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 crazy. And that's why we call it the medical industrial complex, because that's it works very, very similarly to the way that the, the military industrial complex, which, which kind of was co- the term was coined back in the 60s or 70s. One um, of my favorite terms. And <laughs> yeah, it works the exact same way. And it's really is a. It's a scam from my perspective. Yeah. And that's why, you know, Crowd Health is trying to to really change that. And, you know, I'm happy to go into the details of how we're doing that. But that's that's kind of the backdrop for why we need something like an alternative, an alternative to this to the system. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, a big reason why I wanted to have you on. So, yeah, maybe now now dive into Crowd Health, how you guys are actually trying to solve this problem. Yeah, I mean, I think people are kind of blown away by this, but you know, I, and I say that I've got more negotiating power against a hospital than United Healthcare does. Okay, so I'll explain that. You know, I, I live in Austin, Texas, and this is like this in most cities. There's we have two big hospital systems in Austin. So United Healthcare comes in and says, "Hey, even if they wanted to drop the price, so let's just assume for a second they wanted the price to go. They were good players in this, and they wanted the price to go down. Well, we have two big hospital systems. United Healthcare can't lose one of those hospital systems, or nobody else will use United Healthcare in Austin because everybody wants access to all of the, the the hospitals, right? And so the hospitals are like, "Look, we're not negotiating with you," and they just jack up prices every single year, right? And so they're out, they're almost acting as a duopoly in most cities. And so it's hard to negotiate against a duopoly. So let's just take Andy, for example, or, or Neil. You know, we go into the ER and we have a big event. Let's just say it's, you know, a $100,000 event, right? The hospital then has a decision to make. You can either put Andy into bankruptcy or you can negotiate with me for a price that I can actually pay. And so the, the hospitals will then negotiate with me and, and most of the time will drop that by 50 or 60%. And not only that, but they'll spread it out over a period of time. So let's just say that $100,000 goes down to $30,000 and they give me 30 months to pay it. It's $1,000 a month for 30 months, right? At 0% interest. And so I can get a much better price as an individual from the hospital than United Healthcare can. And that's why I say that is we, we're better at negotiating as individuals than United Healthcare can as a, as a company. So, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, crowd health can be so much less expensive than a, a United Healthcare, you know, and then on the other hand, right, if I, let's just say we have a condition that's kind of um, a scheduled condition, like a torn ACL or something, right? Like, you know, we had somebody in Austin a few weeks ago that tore her ACL. She calls us, I tore my ACL, you know, send her to an orthopedic surgeon. The orthopedic surgeon says it's $20,000. And then we say to that orthopedic surgeon, say, look, you know, what if we pay you the day of the surgery? Or what if we allow, you know, enable that woman to pay you on the day of the surgery? Would you, you know, reduce your, your price? He said, yes. And we got it from a hospital into a surgery center. All these things, we dropped the price by 50%. Wow. So just to clarify for, for listeners, when you say pay the doctor the day of, 
typically they have to go through a whole claims process with an insurance company that can take, I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that, I'm sure more knowledgeably than I can, but it can take, you know, months for them to actually get paid the way that it works today. Yeah. So put yourself in the position of a doc, a doctor, you know, the existing system operates this way. I come in, I handed you my insurance card, right? The doctor has to call the insurance company, get pre-authorization for a lot of these procedures and make a case, you know, which oftentimes includes 10 pages worth of data, right? Like writing in, you know, making a case to the insurance plan that this surgery should be, should be done, right? And then finally, they, they say, yes, the surgery will be done. Then we have a billing system that often takes 6 to 10% off the top of whatever you bill the health plan to bill. In addition, you have three or four administrative people per doctor to ensure that the information got put into the billing system correctly, okay? And then let's just assume that the insurance company approves it. Then you don't get the money for 60, 90, or 120 days. So that's how this current system works. The crowd health system works is you walk in, you hand them a Visa card, they run it on their thing. There's a 2% transaction cost for Visa, one and a half to three, depending upon what it is. And they're done. They get their money like that, right? Like which one would you, you know? And so the doctors are like, man, give us visas or MasterCards or whatever all day long because, you know, we'll give you a significant price because I don't have all these back-end costs. I get 30% of my time. And by the way, put yourself in the position of your whatever profession you're in what if you had to call somebody every day to say, hey, am I doing my job correctly? <laughs> right. That's in essence what the doctors are doing. Right. Yeah. You know, and so they've got this master hanging over them, which is just human nature. Like this, that sucks, like having to do that. Right. And so they're like, I don't want to do that. You know, and we, you know, for us, we just trust the doctor. The doctor is, you know, doing what the doctor needs to do. And, and it's just way easier. It's way easier on, on the doc. It's way easier for us. So we get docs all day long calling us saying, please, can you put me in your network? And we were like, we don't have a network, but if somebody, you know, tears their, tears their ACL in Albuquerque or whatever, you know, we'll, we'll keep you on the list and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll consider you guys to do that, that job. So um, we don't pay doctors. Oh, we, we don't pay doctors. We don't get paid by doctors. So we don't really deal much with, with the doctors other than telling our members, hey, this is the doctor you could, should, should go see. And, and really put their, the option on the member to go whoever, whoever they want. And so it's you know no doctor networks or anything like that. You can go to whoever you want. If you want our input, we'll give you your input. If you want us to negotiate it beforehand, we'll negotiate it beforehand. We prefer to negotiate it beforehand. And we provide all those services as a part of your kind of monthly, monthly subscription fee. So is there also a quality comparison going on with doctors on your end as well? Because the place my mind goes to when you're actually bringing this sort of price transparency and negotiation to the patient is now you might actually be able to make logical decisions on where you get your healthcare. Like if let's say I'm, I tore my ACL and I'm looking at two different orthopedic surgeons, one of them's charging me after negotiation, $7,000. One of them's charging me $10,000, but the $10,000 one, you know, seems to have way better outcomes than the $7,000 one maybe I'll go to that $10,000 one. If I'm just getting like an x-ray or something, I might not care about quality you know, of care. It's just, I'm just getting an x-ray. So just give me the cheapest x-ray you can get me. So it's like right now in healthcare, you don't have that. Right, what are commodities and what are, are not? You know, the problem is there's really no commodities in healthcare because the, an x-ray outside of a hospital system can be a couple hundred bucks. An x-ray... An x-ray in the hospital system is probably a couple thousand dollars, right? So you have the exact same x-ray. It can be read by the exact same person and it's, you know, 10x difference. So even the commodities within a mile, I mean, I was, I'm trying to remember the exact situation, but excuse me, we had a guy um, who didn't, I forget was it what it was, like an MRI or, no, it was, it was labs. It was labs. Did it in the system. It was like $600 in a hospital system. And we had a, a facility down the road that we knew would do it for like 95 bucks, right? And it was like five minute drive. And we're like, dude, just drive five minutes. You're going to save 500 bucks, right? Like I'll take that mileage any day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, 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 it's totally screwed up the way that these pricing works. 
And that's why we, we need to bring a little bit more of a, a consumer-based, you know, healthcare approach to this. No, absolutely. Um, so can, I think we didn't even get into this. Can you share how the crowd health model works for patients? So like it's a membership model you'd alluded to, but how exactly does it work in terms of monthly cost, premiums, uh, deductible, anything like that? Yeah. So we, we get rid of all the insurance terminology, no premiums, deductibles, things like that. So, the, but the way that the crowd health works is when you sign up, we sign you up for a bank account. Um, you put 175 bucks into that account every month. If you're between the ages of six and 54, it's a little bit more if you're younger, a little bit more if you're older, but just let's use $175 to, to make it easy. We'll take $30 of that for your subscription fee. So of the 175, 30 comes to us, 145 is in, in your bank account. And then if somebody in the community gets hurt, so let's just say, you know, Neil breaks his arm and it's $6,000, Neil will pay the first $500 of that. And then we'll go and try to crowdfund the remaining $5,500 of that. So we'll go to 55 people and say, hey, Will you each put in a hundred bucks out of that account that you have? So I'm not asking you to put more in, but you have that account that's kind of building up. Will you take a hundred bucks of that account and give it to Neil so that he has enough to pay for his broken arm? You can say yes or no. If you say yes, then a hundred bucks is transferred from your account to Neil's account. If you say no, then we just move on to the next person. And so, you know, and then we'll 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 go until, you know, basically what we try to do is if you have a hundred dollar bill, we'll try to crowdfund up to $125 of that. And if $25 of that says no, then we won't crowdfund at all. But you know, so far, we've done really well with crowdfunding. The real question is, is like, so if it's voluntary, if I can say no to Neil for his broken arm, you know, look, I don't know Neil, his broken arm is not like a heart tugger, you know, <laughs> like it's not pediatric cancer right. or something like that. So why would I say yes to Neil? Well, if I say no to Neil, and I have a health event, then the community knows that I've said no to Neil and Brian and Chris and Ryan and Stephanie, right? And so I've said no nine out of 10 times. So I have a reputation score of 10, 10 out of 100, 10%. They will probably not fund me because mm. I haven't been a very good member of the community. That's super interesting. It's almost like you know an, an eBay seller, right? Like I'm not gonna buy from a crappy eBay seller because they may not deliver for me, but you know, same with, with, with this, it's like, I'm not going to fund, you know, somebody who's not being a good member of the community. And why would I do that? Right. And so there's a, a sense of reciprocity here. That is the, the engine that, that drives this. That's really interesting. And reputation too. I, that's the piece I, I didn't fully get before. Cause I think the member pool makes sense. The crowdfunding aspect makes sense. I have a couple more follow-up questions about that, but generally makes sense. But then this reputation piece is interesting because that shows, you know, you make it transparent how often someone is funding others and it's not anonymous. Maybe, maybe it's anonymous, maybe it's not. I, I, that's unclear to me. But you do get a reputation in the community and that will affect you in terms of if you ever need to raise money, which you, all of us probably will, right? So it's like it creates that incentive, that reputational incentive to be a good member of the community as well. Yeah, we don't say it's Andy S. from Austin, Texas, broke his arm. We say it is a male in Austin who broke his arm and has a reputation score. We call it a generosity score of X, right? Would, would you like to fund this? Yes or no, right? And so that's how that works. And so maybe, like, do you have some examples? I mean, I can definitely see how this would work for, you know, small things, for sure. It makes total sense. So do you always pay the first $500 of costs for yourself? And you pay that out of pocket, or can you pay that from your your sort of bank account that you've you've accumulated? And then anything above that, I mean, actually start with that, and then I have a follow up question on top of that. Yeah. So the the first five hundred of any health event, you'll pay, right? So you know if if you break your arm, you're probably going to go to you know urgent care, then you're going to go to an orthopedist, and then if you have to have surgery, you'll have a surgery, and then if you have surgery, you might have meds. All of that is one health event. Okay, so that all counts in the same one event. Yeah, you'll pay the first 500 of that entire health so event. So it's not each step of that is an event. It's like each, it's the whole event tied to breaking your arm or, you know, let's say, yeah, yeah, just any particular injury or, or specific event. All of those chains of, because there's always multiple, you know, steps in the process. All of them count under one health event. Yeah, so we had, a, we had an ACL tear in Austin a few weeks ago. 
I use this example a lot on podcasts, but it's, I think it's a good one. It's like we had an orthopedic surgeon visit. We had a surgery. We had follow-up orthopedic surgeon visits. We had 20 or something like, you know, 20 physical therapy events. All of that was one health event. The member paid the first 500 and we were, we were able to crowdfund the rest of that, which in total was something like 15 grand. Wow. So basically the first 500 was paid by the person who tore their ACL and then the rest was crowdfunded by the community. Yeah. And I think there's a hundred around, right around a hundred people that helped crowdfund that. Have you had any sort of like, you know, you hear like horror stories of like a hundred K, you know, bill that somebody has from going to the hospital for something, right. Or, or gets some kind of illness like cancer. Have you had examples like that, you know, with crowd health? Yeah. I mean, we had $150,000 brain hemorrhage person was in the, the neuro ICU for, I don't know, several days. So that one is a, is a big one. You know, one of the fun ones, if I can tell a quick story, is um, we had a guy up in, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, who was working out, and then all of a sudden his heart started beating at like 260 beats per minute. And I think it was 260, maybe it was 220, but it was super high, right? So he goes to the emergency room, he thinks he's having a heart attack, or emergency room's like, no, you have this thing called SVT, supraventricular supra tachycardia. And you have to have this procedure. And the procedure, if you want it done, is $83,000. And so he calls us. He's like, CrowdHealth, I'm so sorry. I know I just signed up, but I've got a bill. It's $83,000. And we said, hey, is it okay if we find an alternative to that so that we can you know, try to find you something lower lower price? And so he's like, yeah, sure. For sure. You know. So we found a, a doc in uh, Chicago, which was like 90 miles away, that would do it for 44000 we found a guy in Oklahoma City, which is a thousand miles away, that would do it for twenty-two thousand. So we started with a procedure that was eighty-three thousand dollars. We found them and actually a better doctor, higher quality doctor, that was willing to do it for twenty-two thousand dollars. So we crowdfunded two first-class plane tickets to Oklahoma City, four nights in the nicest hotel in, in Oklahoma City, got their procedure done, flew home, and they save 50 grand, you know, as a result of that. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. That just shows you how screwed up our system is. It's $50,000 difference in, you know, a thousand miles, right? Yeah. For a doctor who, who's done more of these, these procedures than the original doctor who is going to do it for 83,000. I mean, here's the weird thing about healthcare. You know, we, we tend to think as just a culture, right? The things that are higher priced are higher quality, Right. The Ritz-Carlton is going to be better than the Courtyard, right? You know, the Bentley is going to be better than the, I don't know what car company you kind of pick on, the Subaru or whatever, yeah. right? But in, in reality, in, in healthcare, it's actually flipped, right? And if you think about this and you say, okay, you know, we've got a guy that does, you know, colonoscopies of all things in Austin, Texas, and will do them for like 900 bucks. Typically, if you do them, they're 3500 bucks. But he's got his own surgery center, his own anesthesiologist. He does all of them all, and that's all he does all day. It's just boom, 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 colonoscopies all day long, right? And, and he's, he's, it's just like a, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's like putting them through the, the, the line at a, you know, a manufacturing plant. Like everyone is the same. You just do them over and over and over and over again, and you can do them much more efficiently than you know, somebody else, you know, we have another guy in Austin who does knee surgeries and that's all he does all day long. I think he does like four or five knee surgeries every single day, wow. right? He knows knees. And so he can do them massively way more effectively and way less costly than somebody who does, you know, five knees a month. Right. And so that's the weird thing about healthcare. I mean, this type of specialization is what you would expect from a market system is that you get people who are really good or companies that specialize in doing one thing and they do it really, really, really well, or just maybe they do more than one thing later, but it's there are certainly people who will be more efficient and better at doing certain things than others. And then they get economically rewarded and they also tend to be able to offer a better price uh, in many cases. So it makes total sense, but you're right that we are intuitively, we think the opposite because that is, you know, in other markets that actually might be true, that the Bentley is better than the Corolla or whatever. Yeah. Because they're all perfectly efficient. I mean, not perfectly efficient, but they're more, much more efficient than healthcare. 
in their specific competitor set. Like Corollas and Civics are, you know, competing with each other on price and quality and features that a Bentley is not competing with, with those same companies. They're kind of different categories. So it's really interesting. Yeah, that you're right. In healthcare, we don't, we don't think about it that way. And then I guess, so it seems like the negotiation aspect of what you guys do is so crucial to this whole thing working, right? That it's like, because the patient would not know these things. Like if I'm, a, if I'm just trying to get healthcare, you know, need some procedure done, need to do something like I'm not, I don't know how to shop around that same way that you guys would. So you're kind of bringing that service to all of your members. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I had the situation with my daughter and the $8,000 hospital bill, and I just paid the $8,000, right? It's like, if I would have known that I could have negotiated, I would have negotiated, but I just don't know. Nobody knows that they can, they can negotiate, right? They just go in. I mean, it's like you go into the hospital or the doctor's office or whatever, and you just, they give you these, these, all these pages to sign, right? Like all these things. Yep. And you just, you just sign, 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 right? And it's like, it's the same damn pages every single time. Like, why do you keep making me sign this stuff? Well, one of those page, pages basically says, you are responsible for all costs associated with this, right? And so what I tell people is the best thing that you can do is like scratch through that and put appropriate costs and so then you can negotiate it later. And you said, no, I didn't ever agree to that. I was like, give me appropriate cost. What is an appropriate cost for your, for your service, right? And you actually have some negotiation leverage now. And so we teach our members you know, to do things like that because look, this may be scary to some people, but you know, my family was uninsured for about two years, two and a half years, because we, we ditched insurance and you know, we, we kind of learn, like, how do you operate outside of, of health insurance? And so kind of learn these things. And so all of our members don't have insurance. They don't have health insurance. They are uninsured. And so they operate as such within the, within the insurance, within the hospital kind of healthcare system. And as such, they're adding market forces to, to the system, which I think is, is really effective in negotiating. So how many members, I mean, you don't have to share exact numbers, but you know, ballpark, how many members do you guys have nationwide? And then does it, does regional concentration matter at all? Like, is it helpful to have, you know, 5,000 members in Austin or does it not really matter? Can you have 5,000 members spread out all over? It's the same thing. Yeah, it doesn't really matter, actually, because given we don't have networks, we're, we don't have any negotiated contracts with anybody, you know, throughout the country. No, so it doesn't country. So we've got people in all, all but one state. We're missing Rhode Island. Um, we're still waiting for a Rhode Islander. All right. Hopefully someone listening's in Rhode Island. And hey, be up. our first. <laughs> we'll give you a special deal. No, um, so we don't have anybody in Rhode Island, all other 49 states, D.C., Puerto Rico. And then we, we do not operate outside of the U.S. just because everything is different. So, you know, maybe at some point, but not right now. You got a big enough task ahead of you in the U.S. So Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, it's, it's like the people who sign up are kind of liberty, freedom, loving type of people who are like, hey, I, I want to be responsible for my own health care, right? I don't want the government or some big corporation to tell me what I can and cannot do for my health care. And so, you know, we get a lot of uh, libertarians, a lot of Bitcoiners, you know, who are just was like, I, I want to be, be responsible for my own health. So, you know, those are the, the people that seem to be signing on. So you also probably get self-selecting people in terms of their, I'm going out on a limb here and saying they probably take better care of themselves than you know, maybe the average person. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, I mean, that's one of the benefits of our system too. Like we're doing something so different than health insurance that, you know, it's the, the famous book crossing the chasm, right? Like it's, we are in this innovator stage of our company where the people who tend to be innovators tend to be younger. They tend to be fitter. They tend to skew single. They tend to skew male. And so we, our average age is, I think the last I looked was around 36. 60% male, 40% female, 60% single, 40% female, or uh, single, 40% married. Their BMI is, is somewhere between four and five points lower than the national average. They don't smoke. They're not obese. Um, so they, it's just a generally healthier crowd. And a lot of that has to do with just self-selection. It's not like I'm going after the 29-year-old single males. It's just that those those are the types of people that seem to be self-selecting into into you know what we're doing. Right. And I think it, that actually makes sense because somebody who is in that category of per, you know that sort of um, profile or persona of, of member, I guess, would be probably thinking about this for lo like 
they don't want to be completely unprotected, right? They don't want to say, oh, I don't have anything. I don't have insurance. I don't have crowd health. I just, I'm completely on my own because we all know, okay, there are, you know, black swan events that happen in our lives and, you know, you can just break your arm one day or you can, you know, break your leg or you can have some random disease happen. So it's, you know, you, you know, you probably don't want to be completely unprotected, but if you look at what premiums are for health insurance and then you look at the out-of-pocket max numbers, you're like, this is basically catastrophic care anyway. And you're still paying a ton of money in the premium. So so you're not even like very excited about that. And and of course, on top of that, it's like the most convoluted system. It's like going to the DMV. It's like the equivalent of that, you know, dealing with a health insurance company. So it's not a fun user experience, costs a ton of money and doesn't really protect you unless it's like a truly catastrophic thing. So it's like the existing product is pretty bad. And so if you're if you're kind of more of on the innovator side of that, uh, that sort of product adoption curve, this seems like a really good alternative. Yeah, I mean, I think for my family of four going to healthcare.gov, it would be somewhere like 14 or 1500 bucks a month per month. Yeah, per month. And then I would have, I think it was eight to $10,000 of, of a deductible. Right. And so if you just do that in math, right, I'm not very good at math, but let's try to do it here is like 1500 times 12. That's easy. That's 18,000, right? Plus another 10,000. So it's 20, I, I would be out of pocket $28,000 before the health plan is out of pocket a dollar. Right. Like, why the hell would I do that? Yeah. Like, that doesn't make any sense for me and my family. You know, it's, it's divide by maybe two or three, depending upon, you know, if you're, if you're single, if you're single, you're probably still at a six or 700 bucks a month. And then you're probably at a five or six thousand dollar deductible, and so you're out fourteen thousand. What is that? You know, whatever. Seven hundred times twelve, eighty four hundred plus five, right? So you're you're out, say thirteen thousand dollars before the health plan pays a dollar. Like it doesn't make any sense. You know, in, in essence, what the plans are doing is they're they're pricing out people who they actually want to be in the in their group because they're the inexpensive. Yeah, they're the ones where they're pr- almost guaranteed going to have less than that $28,000, let us say, in terms of health healthcare costs. And so the vast majority of our people who come to us are uninsured. They come to us from being uninsured. They're already in this situation of saying, I'm not doing that, right? Crowd health actually sounds like a much better alternative for me as a, hey, that group of people, you know, decent chance they'll be able to help me if I have a big health event. If I'm uninsured, there's zero chance anybody's going to have a, you know, help me if I have a health event. And if I'm... Yeah, you'd have to do like a GoFundMe or something. That's like GoFundMe, right? Which is, yeah. which, is, which is fine too. But, and then and then the health plan, and then the health plan is like, I don't want to pay that much money without, while being single. Like it just, you, you can't ask people to give more than their fair share for so long before the people revolt, you know? And I've, we're seeing a little bit of a revolt in, in healthcare now because guys like me and you who probably are really inexpensive in terms of healthcare, like, screw this. I'm not paying that much. Right. That doesn't make any economic sense. Yeah. Have you ever had an incident where you were not able to crowdfund someone's care? Yeah. For anybody who's had a, a score of 95 or better, we've been able to crowdfund all of their bills. So never, if they had the right reputation score, it was not, not an issue ever. No, not yet. And I can't, I can't, so we can't say we can guarantee No, it. of course. I'm just giving course. you, I'm just giving yep. you statistics yep. that says if you have a, a really good, you know, reputation score, then the chances are, you know, are good that we'll be able to, to crowdfund it for you. What are the reasons why somebody would not have a good reputation score? Just not funding other people's requests? 98% or more of people say yes to healthcare events. And, you know, and I haven't figured out why they would say no, other than we have some people who are DPC maximalists, I'm going to call them, uh, who are like, DPC is the only way, there's no other way. Oh, is that like direct primary care or what direct, is the- Direct primary care, which I, you know, we, we kind of had a little bit of a conversation with one of the doctors that follows you on Twitter. Um, yeah, or saw the post somehow. I don't think he follows me, but yeah, but he had made a comment about direct primary care and I'm completely out of the loop on that. So I, I can- kind of maybe use context clues to figure out what it is, but uh, maybe you can explain that. So um, kind of let me get my original point and I'll talk about DPC, but direct primary care, people who want to do direct primary care don't want to pay for people who go to the doctor and pay on a per visit. So direct primary care is, it's like a a doctor subscription to a doctor, right? I'll pay 50 to a hundred dollars a month. I'll have access to this doctor they won't charge me for anything other than your my fifty to hundred dollars a month to see me, 
right? So every month I pay him 50 bucks, 50 bucks, 50 bucks. And then I can call him whenever I want or her. I can, you know, go them to buy their office. I can do a virtual visit, you know, anytime day or night I have access to that, to that doctor. And I'm paying directly to the doctor as opposed to the health insurance plan paying the doctor in kind of a fee for service uh, scenario. So, you know, we, we actually love DPC. We love that idea where you have this doctor who's your, the gatekeeper to the healthcare system and, and your health who will actually, I said on my last podcast was like, the last time I went to a primary care physician, I had seven minutes with that person. Seven minutes. <laughs> it's like, how are you supposed to understand me in seven minutes, right? With DPC, they take their total population of patients and they reduce it by like 75%. So they have four times as long to spend with you. I mean, it's like a SaaS business at that point, yeah, right? Totally. They got the subscription, so they don't need to go chase, you know, four times the amount of customers because they know they're getting that monthly fee every month and they build a relationship with those yeah, people. Yeah, absolutely. And then they have no incentive to send you to the hospital, you know, x-ray guy who's super expensive and all these kinds of things. So, you know, we love DPC, direct primary care. And any of your, your folks who are listening who don't have a, a primary care physician, go Google direct primary care. It's, it's a really cool, cool innovation. Yeah. So you, it's not that you guys don't get along with that model or don't like that model. It's just, no, we love it. It's just, there's some people on your in crowd health who may, may, you know, maybe firm believers of that and then not want to fund other people's care. Wellness visits. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we will fund uh, wellness visits as a part of ours. So one wellness visit per person per year. What does a wellness visit mean? Just like a physical or yeah. Primary care, physical, annual, you know, if you're a woman, your OBGYN annual, pediatrician, pediatric annual, any of those things will be considered a, a wellness visit. It's basically your annual visit to any one of those three types of doctors. So you can do one of those per year. So what if you're, you know, a woman who needs a physical and a OBGYN visit? What do you do for the second one? Usually those are one in the same. Yeah. And then if you have, if something happens during the year, right, that you have to go see your OBGYN and you know, it's 200 bucks, then you pay that 200 bucks. That's yours because that's under the 500 threshold. Yeah, got it. Got it. Yep. And if, if that $200 leads to something that costs $10,000, then you're paying that $200 plus the first $300 of that next 9,500 or 9,800 or whatever the you know what I use. So you'll pay the first 500 of whatever that health event ends up being. That makes total sense. So there's, <laughs> it's interesting because there's a book I read years ago, maybe four or five years ago called Catastrophic Care by uh, David Goldhill. Uh -huh. Are you familiar with the book? Yes, I've read it. Yeah. So in it, he actually advocates for something kind of similar, not fully. I don't think it's exactly what Crowd Health is building. But one of the things I, I remember distinctly from that book, because it just clicked and it made so much sense was he's like, you don't use your car insurance to get your oil changed. Like that is something you pay for out of pocket. You shop around, you know, but you do use your car insurance if you get into a major accident. And that's kind of like what he was advocating for in his sort of solutions section of that book was that we need to kind of have something closer to that system where, you know, healthcare is not like it's, you don't need, you shouldn't need your insurance to go get like routine, like your annual blood test or your physical or something. That doesn't make sense for, for the way that compared to how other insurance policies work. So it's just very interesting that what you're at, like, as you were saying that, I was like, oh, this is actually very similar that you can just do whatever you want. You know, you can go for three physicals a year if you want, but you're going to have to pay for that. The other, the other physicals. Yeah, sure. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, the only thing I, I probably disagree with him a little bit on is, you know, if you, you know, don't get your oil changed in your car, you're, you are saddled with a hundred percent of the cost of your engine blowing up because you haven't taken care of your car. And, you know, in any kind of scenario, we don't, we don't have that. Right. And so, and, and we actually think it's super important that you go get, you know, an annual, an annual visit, especially, you know, as you start aging. And so I was like, uh, we don't really want people to like not go get their annual visit because it's, it's, it's too much. So we will actually, you know, try and crowdfund that for you. And, and those are, you know, very easy to, to crowdfund most of the time because they're not huge expenses. You know, usually it's 150 to 300 bucks, depending upon where you, where you, you live. And so I think it's something like 20 to 25% of our costs or, you know, total crowdfunding has been for wellness, wellness events. So last question on this particular topic, 
if let's say I just like woke up tomorrow and I was like not feeling great, you know, my like a sore throat or something, and I'm like, oh, I really need to go to a doctor. Like, what is the process? Like, literally walk me through the process for if I'm a patient using Crowd Health. Do I just show up to my doc, like to any doctor? Do I call you guys? Like, what's the what's the procedure like? Yeah. So, I mean, in that situation, it's a great it's a great example. I'm not sure I'm going to answer it the way you want me to, but in that situation, I would go on my app. I would press virtual care, virtual urgent care. I would have a virtual urgent care doc, you know, on the line in average. The Crowd Health app? Yeah, the Crowd Health app. And then the virtual urgent care doc would say, oh, you got a sore throat. Here are the two or three things it could be. Let's get you some meds. Go to the local, you know, what is your pharmacy? Great. They have it. Go pick it up. Right. And in that case, so I had, I actually literally had a buddy who I, you know, saw at church six or seven weeks ago. And he was like, Dude, I'm a member of Crowd Health. I had the same scenario. I woke up, I had something in my throat, and I used your urgent care. He got to me in two minutes. He got me a, a prescription. I went and got it. The prescription was six dollars. It was a generic prescription. I took it. It was for strep throat. It looked like I had strep throat, and I felt better in 24 hours. I didn't even have to get out of the house. And I was like, that's how healthcare should be done. Yep. <laughs> right? There is no need for me to get in my car go to the doctor, sit in a waiting room, you know, give him my credit card, whatever. And that total event for that guy uh, was $6. So the virtual care visit is free? There's no cost to that? Free. It's, it's a part of your subscription. So that's awesome. So then all he paid for was the generic medicine. Six, six bucks. Six bucks. Wow. Yeah. So it's like, why would you ever step into an, a doctor's office again? I mean, what do they do there that they can't do you know, virtually, I mean, it's in 95% of the stuff they can do, they can do virtually. And so we're trying to get people pushed to, you know, urgent care first. And, you know, the other thing too, is people tend to use the, the emergency room way more than that they should. I mean, the stats that I've seen is 80% of emergency room visits are not needed, right? And so if you step into an emergency room, it's several thousand dollars, right? And, it, and you have to sit there for three or four hours and you all these sick people hanging out around you. It's like, why would you do that? Go to urgent care. They'll tell you what to do. And if it's like, if they want you to go to the emergency room, they'll send you to the emergency room. If not, which is most of the time, it's like 85% of the time or something like that. They'll get you the meds that you need and you'll be done, right? Like it's so much easier to get healthcare delivered that way. So, okay. So that actually brings in, so one, thanks for answering that. That's like, that was one of my bigger questions, honestly, for me personally, because I'm considering being a customer. The next question, which you kind of started talking about there, but I want to dive into a little more is uh, the drugs aspect. So I can totally see how the, the model works for generic medicine. You know, generic medicine's cheap. Probably can just pay out of pocket, pay the cash price. It's fine. How does it work if like, well, actually, just I'm sure you get this question all the time. So how does how does crowd health work for prescription drugs or does it not touch prescription drugs? Yeah. So if you have a health event and there's prescription drugs as a part of that health event, it's the same as everything else. Right. It is a part of that health event. You're paying the first 500 bucks for crowdfunding everything else. So that's pretty, pretty simple. So what about then like a chronic condition? Like if it was, you know, I have diabetes, I need to take insulin every day or however often people take insulin. Yeah. So, you know. One of the things for us as a community is if you have a pre-existing condition, then you are responsible for your pre-existing condition for the first year, right? 100% cost you yours. And second year, we will crowdfund up to $25,000 of that pre-existing condition, 50,000 the third year, and then 100,000 beyond that, right? And so in those, those examples, then we will crowdfund 100% of your prescriptions for your chronic condition in you know, up to $25,000 in that second year and then 50 and 100. So those, that's how chronic conditions work. What if you develop a chronic condition? What if you develop a chronic condition during this? Like, it's not a pre-existing, right? It's not that you came in with it. So, so what you're saying, you actually uh, answered the next question that I had, which is, do you, you know, do, are people allowed to have pre-existing conditions and still join? Sounds like they are. They're just responsible for 100%. Then, you know, then they'll cover up to 25,000, 50,000 over time. So that, that answers that question. So you're saying for, let's say like I join, I'm with Crowd Health for four years already, and then I, I develop, I mean, diabetes is just an easy one. So then I need, you know, I have like insulin costs and other things. You're saying I would still, I would just pay the first 500 and then I could crowdfund the rest of the costs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Interesting. That's really cool. Yep. The next question beyond that typically is, okay, what if it's like one of these wickedly expensive drugs, right? Like the $20,000 a month drugs. So remember, we're all uninsured, right? And so all these pharmas have financial assistance programs for people who are uninsured, right? And so we will help you enroll in those financial assistance programs and you know, can get those drugs down significantly because you're ripping out the PBM in the middle of it. You're ripping out a whole bunch of stuff. And so, you know, that's the way that we would we would do that. There's a couple other ways, too, that are kind of proprietary to us that I'm not going to kind of talk about. But um, there's other ways of getting those costs down, too. So we've got a way to, to do that as, as well. We give people access to, you know, significantly reduced uh, prescription drug stuff. I mean, GoodRx is showing it on the retail side to be very, very effective where you can get, you know, drugs 60 or 70 percent, maybe more than that sometimes versus what the health plan will pay, you know, the for it at, at whatever pharmacy. So there is there are ways to get these drug prices down significantly. And I'm, we're going to come back to that uh, in a minute. But before we do that, just wanted to dive into the Bitcoin aspect here as well. So you have there's a whole sort of Bitcoin side to crowd health. And maybe you could talk about that a little bit too. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin fan. I was telling this to a, a buddy of mine, Jimmy Song, who if you're a Bitcoiner, you know Jimmy. He's, he's kind yeah, of a, he's, he's famous. <laughs> you know, Bit, Bitcoin maximalist. So I was actually having lunch with him and I was telling him about this. And he's like, man, you know, the problem with health insurance is like you put money into this big pool of capital and it's that pool of capital is just melting, mm, right? I mean, it's, yeah. we're, we're seeing, you know, it's fiat, it's melting. You know, we just saw, I think it was yesterday, what was it, eight and a half percent or something inflation in July. And so you have to kind of raise raise prices to keep up with the melting, you know, fiat. And so it's like, what if people could hold their money in Bitcoin? It's like, man, that's kind of interesting, right? And so what we've done is, you know, if you put $175 into your account, $30 is taken by CrowdHealth as a subscription fee. 75% of that 145 is converted to Bitcoin and put into a Swan Bitcoin account um, that's yours. We don't touch it. We never touch it. We can't get access to it. It's yours, right? You know, look, it's, fiduci- it's, it's you know, kind of, kind of a fiduciary kind of thing there, right? But it's, it's not, um, you don't have your keys, but it's still, it's, it's yours in that account. We don't touch it. And so, you know, the upside of that, if Bitcoin goes from, 23,000, I think it's at today, or 24,000, I guess it hit, to 150,000, all that upside is yours, right? And so the downside is yours too. If it goes from 23,000 to 13,000, and then we have a health event and we, we say, hey, do you want to fund this? And you don't have money in your account. You can either say no, or you can sell your Bitcoin, or you can put more money in, right? If you don't want to sell your Bitcoin. In essence, what you're doing then is buying Bitcoin at a much lower price, which Bitcoiners are kind of excited about, right? So it's like the downside is I'm buying Bitcoin at a much lower price. That's a good thing. Yeah, because exactly. Yeah, if you believe in the thesis that, you know. Yeah, and over any kind of intermediate term, right, Bitcoin has gone up over the last, you know, whatever it is, 12 years. And so, you know, we're, we're very comfortable with it. The other thing with that is, is that, that we, we call it the Bitcoin crowd. The Bitcoiners are, are funding each other's health events. So we have kind of put them to the side and now you Bitcoiners are funding each other's. So you have a Bitcoin, a crowd of just Bitcoiners, which is also kind of interesting because one, they tend to be more fit. They tend to be younger. There's a whole bunch of demographics there that there's a healthier crew. But I think maybe even more importantly is, you know, everybody thinks they're getting screwed by health insurance. And so when you need to use the system, you try to suck as much value out of that system as possible right? That's just human nature. I'm getting screwed. So I'm going to try to extract as much value as possible in the Bitcoin crowd, right? Like, you know, if you try to extract as much as possible, you're going to be forcing other people to sell their Bitcoin or you're selling your Bitcoin, right? Like, and you don't want to do that. Like, you don't want people selling Bitcoin. Like, that's just a fundamental part of being a Bitcoiner. is like, you don't sell your Bitcoin. (laughs) And so you actually have an incentive to change your behaviors around how you consume healthcare. And you will look for that lower price and you will second guess, do I really need 22 different types of labs, right? If I'm 26 years old with no symptoms? No, you really don't. And so we think that the, the consumer behavior will change 
and I'm, I'm my guess is is and we've seen it already thus far is the total costs for that crowd is just really really low <laughs> yeah like because they don't consume nearly as they much just don't consume yeah. a lot of hell here which yeah. means that a lot of money is still left in their bank accounts right and if you if you have money in your bank accounts or you you have bitcoin in your swan account and you leave that's yours that's your money you take it with you so we have a 250 dollar account closure fee but anything above that it's your money so i've tweeted the other day it was somebody had like 3000 or 3500 or something like that in their account and if they decided to leave crowd health today they would take the 3500 dollars with them Minus 250 for an account closure fee. And I would imagine it accumulates over time, right? It's like because you're paying in every month, if you're not funding that much in health events every month, then it just it just adds up and snowballs. Yeah. So if you think about it, like right now we're at, I think it's, it's 24%, 26%, something like that for total health, you know, amount spent on health events. So if you put in $100, 74 cents is still left in there. You're going to put in another $100 next month. 74 cents is going to be left at the end of that month because we're only asking for, you know, 25%. If you say yes to all the crowdfunding events, right? And then another 75 the next month and another 75 the next month. And, and so it, like, it does accumulate over, you know, a period of time. And look, if we have, you know, a monster NICU or, you know, that's neonatal intensive care, like a baby is born and needs to spend a bunch of time in, in the hospital, that's a big event. That might be a million dollar event, right? And so we might ask you, and your your account might kind of go down like this before it goes back up again. But that's the whole the point, right? Is you'll help your community member in the case of a of a biggie. And if you had a biggie, you'd want them to help you too, right? And so that's kind of how this this works. And so we we think it's gonna be pretty effective. <laughs> the more I hear about this, like the more awesome it is. So now th this is gonna be like a tougher question, I feel like, but I wanna give you uh give you a chance to answer it. Like Let's say you were like the dictator of the United States and you could decide how healthcare worked in America, right? You know, you've put a stake in the ground by starting this company. And I would also love to hear that part of the story too, if, if, if uh, you want to sure, get into yeah, yeah. it. But you've put a stake in the ground by starting this company that, you know, you think this is part of the solution or at least this is the solution or at least part of the solution. And that's what you're kind of devoting your life energy to, to building that. So clearly what you're building is is part of the, you know, what, what you think the solution is. But I'm curious if there's like other elements to it or there's other ways that, you know, you were like, we can't do this because of this regulatory reason or we can't do this because of, mm -hmm. you know, this medical industrial complex reason. If you could like sort of wave the magic wand, you know, not to use a cliche, you know, what would that look like? For the most part, built what I want. The only ad I would do is in the United States. I know you said that you have a bunch of people that kind of route the United States. We have something called a health savings account where you can put money in pre-tax. So if I make $100 of salary and I put it into, you know, I typically would pay, you know, 40 bucks or whatever of taxes, depending on what state you're in. But if I put it in a health savings account, it would be tax free. So it would be kind of a pre-tax a pre contribution. So that makes a ton of sense for people. But right now in the United States, you can only do that if you have a high deductible health plan. So what I would do if I were the dictator, is say, hey, you can use a health savings account for whatever scenario, right? So if I can take crowd health and I can latch a health savings account onto it. So you, you know, for that first $500 or for the, any of those things that you don't, you know, you, you're paying for, you have money pre-tax yeah. to use there. So that would be my only ad. So HSAs can't be used for uninsured people? That's wild. I mean, if you have an HSA, you know, but you can't add to it if you're uninsured. Mm. So you keep it, like if you leave the plan, you, you keep it, but you can keep it. You can't mm -hmm. just start one even if you're uninsured. And you can't add to it. You can't add to it. You know, in California, you have to have health insurance, right? Like, so for all the Californians so out the there, there's a yeah. mandate at the state level, and I would get rid of all those mandates. I mean, that's just a tax, that is. It's is just, that the only state that has there's, that? There's five. There's five states, and I, I don't remember exactly. It's like D.C., California, I believe New Jersey, and then... It's on our website. I can pull it up for you, but I don't remember exactly what the five. Massachusetts is one. What do they do if you don't have it? Is it like you get fined or what? They find you. They find you. <laughs> and usually it's, it's up to like 2,500 bucks, I think. 2,500 bucks per family. So it's a couple hundred bucks a month. And, you know, I say with crowd health, like, look, take the fine. You're still saving a bunch of money. You know, for my family, like I said, I mean, was, if I'm saving $10,000 or $12,000 or whatever it is every, every year and I have to pay $2,400 of, of taxes, then or, you know, fee, deal with it. I mean, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, it just reduces the ROI a little bit, but it's still a good ROI. 
Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So those, but it's not every state because that was one one thing that I remember. But yeah, with uh, Obamacare, that was like a big deal. But then they stopped enforcing that on a federal level, right? So it was that's not really a thing anymore. Yeah. There's still a mandate, but there's no penalty, which in essence, there's no mandate. There's no penalty. There's no mandate. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, the speed limit's the speed limit's 65, but there's no speeding tickets. The speed limit's not 65 anymore. (laughs) Exactly. That was a that was a Trump executive order that did that. And, you know, that that mandate was the most unpopular part of Obamacare, both from the left and the right. And so I think there's no like there wasn't much pushback. No. Yeah. There's not not a lot of legislative you know, horsepower to go after that. So what happens then to healthcare in America if this if this kind of catches on, this becomes the more mainstream way to consume healthcare? Like what is sort of the path forward? Like if crowd health becomes, you know, the main way that we're all consuming healthcare, or at least purchasing the protection, I guess, for healthcare events. How does that change? So I know we started this conversation with there's no market forces in healthcare today. How does this fix that? So just like sort of connect the dots. So I, we can kind of break down healthcare in the United States where, you know, there's, it's about a $4 trillion is spent on healthcare currently. About a trillion dollars of that, I'm using round numbers, but a trillion dollars of that is paid by the, the federal or the state governments. So that's Medicaid and Medicare. Three trillion is left over. We literally could open up about a trillion dollars worth of value annually if you used a crowd health model, maybe even more, maybe even more than that. So imagine taking a trillion dollars and sticking it back into the pockets of of the American you know, population every every year. I mean, that's that's a substantial amount of amount of money. Take what you're paying on healthcare right now and, and cut it in half. What would you be able to do just practically with that money? It is the biggest tax on the middle class. So if you're making between seventy-five and one hundred thousand dollars, you're paying more in healthcare costs than you are in taxes. It is a a significant impact on, especially the middle class. I mean, the poor get Medicaid, the rich they can afford it. Doesn't really matter, right? It's it's really the American middle class that that is the ones that are getting hammered by this. And everybody talks about you know income disparity, you know things like that. Like, look, dude, this is one of the big reasons why. Like. The middle class are the ones, as a percentage of the revenue, paying most for their for their healthcare, and so we can, you know, bring those people up out of that deficit, and I think have a pretty significant impact. And not only the cost side, it also depresses wages because employers are covering, or employers are paying these healthcare costs. So it's like, sure, if I have a total comp for this employee of ten thousand this year per month. And, you know, next year I want to pay them 11000 in total comp, but then the healthcare premium that I owe goes up by 1000 Well, I can't give them a salary increase because I have to pay that extra 1000 in a healthcare premium. Yeah. You know, people say like, people say my employer is paying for my health insurance. No, your employer you is not paying for your you health are. insurance. Yeah. You're paying for it. It's You're just paying the, out of your total comp. Yeah. The yeah. employer is using the money that they would be paying you for your healthcare. Like you're paying for it. Let's be very, very clear. You know, and the other thing too is, the RAND organization did a, a, a study a year or two ago. I can't remember exactly, but it was, they came out and they said two and a half to four million people would quit their jobs and doing, do something entrepreneurial if it weren't for high healthcare costs. Like that means we have, we have two and a half to four million people who are trapped. They're actually, you know, it's called handcuffed. It's like employment handcuffs that, you know, employers use to keep you with the organization because you can't afford healthcare outside of that organization. So like, man, Let's, and that's anti-American. Let's unleash the entrepreneurial spirit of these people, allow them to go you know, start, start businesses. And that's what America is all about. To that point, like there's, you know, you've, I'm sure you've seen these stats, but in case someone in the audience hasn't, entrepreneurship rates in America are, despite what you might think from the media, they're about half of what they were 40 years ago. And you have to wonder if part of that is tied to these healthcare cost reasons where people previously could afford to go work for themselves. And now it's because of all these healthcare costs and the way the healthcare is structured, it's just they're trapped. They financially cannot leave or take that leap to go start their own business, which might have been a lot easier in the past. Totally. So the, so the crowd health way impacts a lot of things in our, our, our society, I feel like. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's the problem here, right, is we got United Healthcare and all these other kind of organizations that are really, really big. They've got a lot of money. They got a lot of lobbyists that are the key, one of the key stakeholders in this medical industrial complex that we've been talking about. And so, you know, it is a bit of a David versus Goliath type of, of thing here, but 
man, I think we have shown to be effective in getting healthcare costs down significantly for our for our members. And so I hope the legislative body will, will look at that and be like, man, maybe this is a good thing, right? Most of the people who hear about it who are free market people were like, that's awesome. The folks who think the government should take care of us don't think it's awesome. That's a problem. Yeah, I, <laughs> mini, mini rant here, but just like, it depends what the goal is, right? If the goal is to make healthcare more affordable, then it shouldn't matter if you're a free market person or a government healthcare person. It's just like whatever is going to be the best solution. And if there's something that seems to be working, like we should all be very excited about that. That's it for the mini rant. But the actually, you brought up a really good a really good thing around government funded healthcare. What is the argument in your experience? You know, against that or for that? Like, is that better than the current system, but not as good as crowd health? Is that worse than the current system for, you know, X, Y, Z reasons? Like, because, you know, I, I haven't done a deep dive into this, but, you know, you do hear all the time about, you know, things like Medicare for all and like stuff like that. How would that affect the system versus, you know, what crowd health is doing and versus what, what the status quo is? Sure. You know, I look, I, I just have a fundamental belief that the government should not be involved in my health care. Like I need to be responsible for my own health. You know, and it's like, you know, you talk to Bitcoiners and they they have this term, right, based on a, a book that was written, you know, what, 20 years ago or something called The Sovereign Individual. And so I was like, OK, so how are you a sovereign individual if your health plan is telling you what you can and can't do with your your body? Right. Like you're not a sovereign individual. You may be sovereign monetarily, but like what's more important, your body or your money? I would say my body is more important to me than my money is like make me poor and healthy as opposed to rich and not healthy. Like, which one would you choose? And so I just have a fundamental belief that the, regardless of the cost structure, like the government should not be involved in my healthcare. That's just a fundamental belief and you're not gonna change my mind on that, right? So I do not think Medicare for all is good. Will it be lower cost? Probably, you know, generally it will be, I mean, what we've seen in the NHS and Canada and things like that, you'll have a lower cost, but your wait times are increased significantly. Right, so here's a major trade-off. So there's a trade-off. And so, we, you know, we hear these stories, you know, especially during COVID is people had have to, you know, tear their knee up and, you know, need an ACL surgery. And it takes them 12 months to get their, their ACL figured out. It's like, that just doesn't fly, right? Like, I don't want to be a part of that part of that system. It's also not a robust system in the sense that you have one, like more of a one size fits all healthcare, which is kind of the opposite of what you would you know, especially if you think about the direct primary care folks, right? Like they are thinking about healthcare being hyper individualized and personalized. And in the, on the flip side, you know, with a single payer type system, you probably have like much more of a rigid system where it's like, if the person has like this code of thing, then do X, right? And it's like, that may not be actually the right approach. It's all, it's all algorithms on that. Algorithm, on that. That's the word I was looking for. Yes. Yep. Yeah, and, and you know, and I think that it's it's not individualized. It's I can't I can't get there on on the uh, the the Medicare for all you know side of things. So and look, and here's the other thing too is I'm all about personal responsibility, right? And so if somebody else is paying my health care bills, then there is very little incentive for me, short term incentive, which is how we act as humans on our short term incentives generally, to take care of myself. I feel like we as Americans need to need to feel some of the pain associated with the bad decisions that we make. Um, and I do think the best lessons are learned through some painful consequences. It just is what it is, you know, and you grow and you grow in those painful situations, too. So I think Medicare for all says, like, don't care what you put in your body. Keep drinking, you know, Pepsi's, you know, 16 times a day and you can be, you know, have a BMI of 42 and that's okay. Like, because the government's going to take care of you. I just think, I think it's just bad policy all around for the individual, for a human being that is a, you know, fiduciary of yours. I completely agree with that. But it's just, it's interesting that the only other solution really being proposed to healthcare, actually really the only, if you look at mainstream sources, the only solution being proposed to healthcare costs is like more government. And it's like partially what, what got us here is more government, at least partially, right? I mean, it's this complex as we're talking about this medical industrial complex. Yeah. Well, we just saw it in the bill that got passed by the Senate is they're now, you know, they're adding to the subsidies for healthcare.gov that were started for COVID. It was specifically for COVID. We want to help people out because they're out of work. 
And now, of course, the government can't can't give you something and then take it away. Like, it's impossible to take it away. And so what they did is just a huge expansion of Medicaid. It's probably the biggest expansion of Medicaid ever. And they're just kind of making it look like it's subsidies. But no, it's, it's an expansion of Medicaid is what it is, right? And so they're kind of starting from the bottom and working their way up to eventually, you know, I think actually one of the motivations here is like the employers are so pissed off that healthcare is, you know, is so expensive, you know, because it's hitting their bottom line. I think the government is wanting them, the employers to come to them and say, well, why don't you take over care of ours too, right? So we don't have to take care of it as employers. So they're having a bottom up approach and then a top down approach as employers are like, I don't want to deal with this. This is not my business. Let's get it away from the employers. Let's the government take it. And that's, that's ultimately what they're, they're trying to do. So I think, but maybe I'm being a conspiracy theorist. I don't know. No, I don't know. <laughs> uh, usually conspiracy theories turn out not to be conspiracy theories these days. So <laughs> uh, I, I told you so is typically what happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, Andy, this has been, this has been amazing. One, you're gonna have to get me Jimmy on the podcast at some point. That's, that'll be fun. Yeah. He's, he's a, he's a super solid dude, good human being and very gracious. Gracious is what it's time. Yeah. I've listened to his, uh, to his show many times. So yeah, big fan. Where should people go if they're like listening to this? They're like, wow, this is interesting. I want to learn more, potentially sign up. What's the best place for them to go? Is it your website? Yeah, go to, um, if you're interested in the, the, the Bitcoin version of what we're doing, go to crowdhealthbtc.com. If you want kind of the, the typical fiat version is joincrowdhealth.com. You'll find us on Twitter, joincrowdhealth. Schoonover Andy is my, my Twitter handle. And you can kind of see all my rants on, on healthcare if you follow me. So, and, and look, you know, it's one of those things where if you're pissed off with the healthcare system, you can be a part of it or not be a part of it. And you don't want to be a part of it, then give us a, a chance because our people really love what, what they're getting with us and be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. That's a, a great way to end it. Andy, thanks so much for doing this. And uh, if, you're, if you're interested, definitely check out all those links. I'm going to put them in the show notes. And make sure you follow Andy on Twitter. I've been doing it for maybe three, four weeks, and it's been uh, he's been a fun follow. <laughs> so uh, I appreciate it. Thanks again, Andy.